I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. And for this episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer, we're very happy to have a very special guest join us today, Delphine Router, who is in Belgium and is the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, uh, Data Journalist and Researcher. And she started collaborating with the ICIJ on the LuxLeaks project in 2014. Now, prior to joining ICIJ's Data and Research Unit full-time, she described her position as brain for hire. She's no data witch, but somehow working for ICIJ has sparked a love for spreadsheets, everything that requires research and cross-border investigations. Previously, she was a freelancer working on investigative cross-border projects. She's also been a researcher for environmental organizations. And more recently, she was a coordinator of journalism training for professional for professionals and a teacher at the IHECS, a journalism school in Brussels. She holds a degree from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism in New York and the IHECS in Brussels. Delphine, welcome to GDP. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure and I'm, I'm really delighted that uh, we found time to chat, especially right now, as the Pandora Papers have just come out. And, uh, you know, I think if I read the, the tagline correctly here, this, this amount of data and information about offshore finance makes the Panama Papers look pretty small in comparison. I'm, I'm wondering if you could just give us a heads up about what the Pandora Papers are about and why people should be interested in this data that's just come forward. Yes, sure. Um, it is a site, I mean, it is a project that closely resembles the Panama Papers, hence the name that we chose that actually uh, is a callback to the project that we published in 2016. Um, but it is it is very different in other ways. So we are still talking about offshore finance. We're still talking about people holding uh, offshore entities, Panama foundations, BBI companies, and, and such likes. But at the same time, when the Panama Papers uh, came out, we were only talking about one company, Mossack Fonseca in Panama. And here we are talking about the documents from 14 different offshore service providers. So the type of documents that we have access to, even though the size of the leak is pretty com- uh, comparable to the Panama Papers, uh, the width and the depth of information that we have is much more diverse and is also complementary to what we, we investigated a few years back. So it, it's very interesting to, um, to look through those documents and, um, and, and pick up where some of the trails that we were investigating a few years ago uh, left us. Um, the main findings that we have, so 14 offshore service providers, of course, all over the world. We have companies in Panama, in Hong Kong, in Switzerland. So those service providers are based around the world. Uh, we have performed a data analysis of the number of politicians that we could find, and we came up with 336 current and former heads of states and public officials who, uh, in total, hold uh, nearly 1,000 companies. The exact number is 956 different offshore entities uh, tied to uh, heads of state and public officials in 90 plus countries. 
Um, amongst those, we have 35 current and former heads of state. We have the King of Jordan, the President of Kenya, of Ukraine, of Ecuador. We have the current Prime Minister of Czech Republic. Uh, we have Putin's unofficial Minister of Propaganda. And we have about 130 plus billionaires. So it's, it's a wide range of people with different kinds of power, economic power, political power. Um, we also have um, people who use different kinds of entities like trusts. We have lots of, lots of information about trusts um, because it's the type of offshore service providers that we, uh, we could um, look into. So this is, this is um, something that is comparable. Like the Panama Papers was 11.5 million documents. Pandora Papers is 11.9. Uh, so it's, it's just a little bigger. And in terms of terabyte, I don't know if people will be <laughs> interested in the size of the leak as well, but it's Panama was 2.6 terabytes and this one is close to three terabytes. So, so you so, need like three external hard drives to, to handle that is what you're saying. We, yeah, we, I mean, we have a great tech team who uh, collected all this data and make it, made it ready for us to, to research because of course nobody can download and read through 11.9 million documents. It's just impossible, but we have a great system called DataShare and all the journalists working on this investigation can access it uh, securely. They can perform what we call batch searches. So they can go through the documents with a series of queries, which makes it much easier to access the information, organize it and go back to it um, when you need to, because it's a month long investigation, sometimes more than a year long investigation. I mean, we started investigating two years ago, but some of us, only had a few months, depending on where they were and, and how long they could dedicate to it. So it's it's we're trying to provide as much tech support and training as possible so that the journalists who join us don't feel like they have to catch up with um, with the rest of the group. Right. And the the numbers that you've just mentioned here, I mean, the, the number of billionaires that are included in this file is, is, is something else. And then it also invites the the opportunity to step back and just say for each billionaire, you know, how much wealth do they actually have, uh, you know, in these systems? And I think there's something to it there that like, if anything, this data breach is just showing or, or, or you know, data, what, what would be the term that you would uh, refer to? Is it a data dump or? Yeah, you can call it a okay. dump. Although I'm not a super fan. You can call it a leak. You can call it a leak. project. Okay. That's, but that's pretty, uh, Pretty neutral. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, 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 we'll stay with that. We'll stay with that. And uh, it, but to me, it just shows like we're living in a in an era in 2021 with these very serious uh, inequalities in in from everything to, to from political justice to social social justice, political rights, and of course to to wealth. And to mm -hmm. see that this cadre of super wealthy people have got their finances tied up in these offshore accounts. Uh, you know, it, it, it's like a hidden world that, that, that is part of this world. And, and I'm just trying to think, what are some or other the, the very obvious and immediate takeaway messages to know that such a, a, a large financial system is existing essentially in the shadows? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it exists in the shadows because people in power have decided to let it exist in shadows. What I mean by that is that this system is actually very well known by the people who use it. It's readily available. 
Uh, it's a specific type of lawyers, trust providers. Those companies organize conferences. They organize, um, I mean, they publish about their services in newspapers and magazines. It's just a specific industry that is allowed to persist and, and thrive because um, a lot of people in power do need their services. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the basic reason why it's still allowed to exist. But it's actually not that complicated to understand. I mean, some of the schemes that are used are, are quite tricky because they require a lot of research in different kinds of jurisdictions and a lot of investigative journalists who try to follow the money trail across the world often uh, hit a wall because, you know, the, all of a sudden the company is in Jersey or the BVI mm -hmm. and they know straight away that it's impossible. They will never find information about who is behind the company because in those places the secrecy is so high that you cannot get your hands on the documents um, that you could in other places, right? So this is why this is so important for um, this kind of leaks, this kind of uh, information to be given to journalists because we can spend the time and collaborate on investigating those those sometimes very quite uh, quite tricky money trails that in involve bank accounts in different places, real estate investments, um, invoices, you know, all, all the kind of documentation that you have to go through to really understand what you're looking at. What are you looking at? Something that's illegal, that's immoral? Is this something that happens all the time? What is what is the news that is revealed through this uh, through these documents? So this is, yeah, it's. Um, well, that's, that I think is a great point because some of the the campaigns out there that have dealt with you know major inequalities, um, like the Jubilee campaign was one, the Robin Hood campaign was another, that was trying to just show that there's such phenomenal volumes of wealth that are outside of taxation systems. Mm -hmm. so that's one issue for sure. Um, but then even within the jurisdictions that uh, that are supposed to be transparent, if it's Canada, if it's the U.S., I mean, there's still ways to for the elite and the wealthy to get their taxes down a fair amount without having to go to offshore. So I'm, I'm trying to think here, what, what is the real motivation for the, this group of people to take the time and create these complicated networks to basically channel wealth away into these Island nations and into places like you say, that have high secrecy. Is it just about ev evading tax? Um, it depends. I mean, a lot of it is about what they call, uh, what is called tax optimization, which is a very murky section of taxes. I mean, obviously tax optimization very quickly leads to tax evasion if you're not careful. Yeah. Uh, some of these schemes really have to be analyzed by experts who can, who can say where, where the red flag has to be planted. But, um, if you look at Latin America, this was something that's, um, that was revealed, that came to light a lot through this project. A lot of you know, powerful uh, Latin American leaders, former leaders, former ministers, current uh, current presidents, use uh, companies in Panama and elsewhere to do a, um, a range of things. A lot of it is investments. They just need uh, some kind of holding uh, entity to organize their investments. They also, I mean, that's, that's the responses that we got or that's what we see in the documents. Or they use um, companies in Florida uh, as a way to hold a bank account that just makes it easier for them to invest in dollars, for example. So it's 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 part of like a wider system uh, where they are actually told that um, you know this is the way that they should be doing business. This is this is how it works. This is how you buy real estate. Well, real estate is tied to the to a BVI company. It just comes with the package. Like that's how Tony mm. Blair and his wife are in the documents. They just 
happened to buy uh, real estate and it was held by a BVI company and now their names are tied to it. So it's, it's something that is just all over the place and it's very, very visible. Um, mm. So it happens over and over. People are A lot of people are using the offshore system, even sometimes without realizing it, without realizing how much money they're, they're actually uh, putting into the system. And um, yeah, so this, this is... This is actually something that we say happens in the shadows and happens in secret, but it is uh, only because the transparency is so um, is so bad. <laughs> Basically, right, you, just, right. you just need access to registers of beneficial ownership. It's it's the same debate that's been going on for so long, right? Where activists, journalists, uh, politicians are calling for more transparency when it comes to beneficial ownership because it's one of the key. Uh, debates uh, to make sure that we can actually hold the powerful to account. Right. And, and you know, in those cases, um, I mean, I did a, a quick scan of, of, of some of the key figures that, that you've, that the ICIJ has put up. And, uh, you know, there's three Canadian prime ministers who all have their names there. And, and some of their offices have given statements, you know, Mr. Mulroney and Mr. Martin had, had all sorts of uh, dealings before they they assumed uh, uh, prime ministership of Canada, and and they said at the time, uh, well, you know, we were just we were doing business and we were, you know, this is how it worked. We were finding advantages and whatnot, and it didn't seem to be too malicious. But part of me, I guess, it's my I don't know if it's my 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 critical academic side or just my completely suspicious side, uh, thinks that when that much money and that much wealth and that much power is is entrusted to a murky interconnected global network like this uh it has to be doing something in there you know it's rare to just give money over to a bank and have them physically hold it uh usually banks make money uh, by by using your investment to do something else with it and and is that something else that that this report is able to to lead us towards or to, to have discussions about what that money is actively up to in that sphere? Hmm. Um, there goes the question of funds, right? And the investment mm-hmm. funds. And it's, it's very intricate because those funds, uh, which are often based in Cayman Islands, other really, really opaque. Um, if any whistleblower listens to, <laughs> listens to this uh, maybe the word Cayman Islands will uh, will spark some some ideas, but um, yeah, we we looked at it actually last year a little bit because we we were working on the FinCEN files at the time, and um, part of the FinCEN files, I mean, at the heart of the FinCEN files, you had those U.S. banks that were allowing uh, a lot of transactions to take place, whereas they, sh- they should have uh, stopped the transactions, but they just reported the transactions, and hence were able to just you know, let them go through. Um, but um, yeah, what, what you need is a better understanding of how the investment funds are using some of the money that is, you know, being shown in the documents that we have access to and where right. those funds are investing. But it's it's really intricate because it might be a few hundred dollars here, a few thousand dollars there, and you would need to have a detailed historical record of, you know, each fund that was used and um, where it was investing money at the time to make sure that you can actually see the impact on the ground. So, you know, right. the, the, because it's it's like a record at a certain point in time. So if you're looking at, I don't know, uh, an investment account with Morgan Stanley, and then you have a bunch of funds naming there, some of them with very long names, number one, two, and three, 
uh, are you sure that you can trace back uh, where those funds were investing at the time? Like, do you have actually access to this information? Can you actually see the uh, the concrete impact on the ground of this investment? And that, that makes it very hard sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah I, ma- I imagine it would. I know that uh, some of the work that I've done previously looking at um, what we call it shady shipping, I guess, if you would like to, especially some of the the maritime traffic going in and out of, out of North Korea over the last uh, six years, uh, that network, that maritime traffic relied on a lot of offshore accounts and offshore businesses, uh, be it in Hong Kong was a, was, a, was a place that helped to set many of the companies up, but there was heavy reliance on places like Seychelles and BVI and, uh, and other you know famous players that have been both in Panama and now Pandora Papers. But what was very interesting is how quickly things could change. Like there, there were cases where ships would, uh, you know, leave a port and say it's going somewhere else and they'd, they'd wind up in North Korea. Um, and then they would leave North Korea and go somewhere else. And in that time, the ownership and registration of the ship changed maybe once, maybe twice, you know, on a, on a, on a 24 hour trip. So that's, you know, you're right. The timing of this and just how, quickly things can change around probably just mm-hmm. only compound how difficult it is to get transparency at this time yeah in a way shipping is very comparable to the world of finance you have a lot of issues with um the flags of convenience in countries and countries of registration versus uh the countries where the beneficial owner is located uh, a lot of opaque um and transparent laws uh and and also very very old laws in some cases where Yes, the, the seamen who are on board those ships are left without um, any recourse when they're left uh, when they're abandoned in, in ports. It's a very, very uh, yep. <laughs> it's yeah. an industry that hasn't really evolved uh, in, in a way finance has, but it still relies on a lot of secrecy and a lot of um, and a lot of and a lot of private bankers and trust providers who are just ready to provide the services that their clients need. Uh, what we see here is that. We do have access to the, the records of 14 offshore service providers, but then they work with intermediaries and middlemen. And those are the ones who are in touch with the end clients. Those are the companies that do hold, uh, you know, the information about who the beneficial owners are. And sometimes, you know, they don't they don't want to provide this information to the registered owners. And you right. can see uh, around 2018, 2017, 2018, the BVI, they passed uh, an act called BUS. Um, it's, around, it's about beneficial ownership. Whereas um, where the uh, registered agents are actually required to hold on file the information about beneficial owners of the uh, of the companies they register, and you see them struggle sometimes to get this information from their intermediaries, who say, "Well, we've been dealing with this person for so many years; we cannot possibly go back and ask them for you know all this information." So there is a lot of reluctance um, on the part of a lot of those private bankers and trust providers to just do the right thing and be transparent about, about business dealings. And, and are there, are there tools available to create that pressure so that there is transparency or are states or the European union or other organizations just lacking that at this time? I mean, there has been a push at the European level, European union level for beneficial ownership registers to be created. Um, but there's a lot of leeway in how that happens. So, for example, um, a register might be available, but then you would have to pay to access the information. 
which limits already, you know, the amount of people who will actually access this information. Uh, it might be only provided in a few languages, uh, and then you can't really use Google Translate. It doesn't really work, so it's very hard to use. Um, or uh, you're not really sure if they're actually checking the information that you are <laughs> you are accessing. Some people might be reluctant to check this information. Or they might update the register and make it harder for you to access information about uh, closed companies, for example. They might just decide to pull information from older companies and archive it, and it's no longer available online. So even right. though, you know, on the face, uh, I mean, a lot of those uh, authorities will say, that they are ready to do better and they will improve uh, access to information. When you do access those registers, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of loops, uh, hoops that you have to to jump through, which make it very hard for anyone. Just you know, it's not just anyone who can use them, basically. So it, it's once again it shows that how it, important it is to collaborate. Uh, whether you know it's journalists on on a local basis in between different countries in Europe or on on, in, on an international basis. Because you just need people on the ground who understand the context and can tell you where to find the information. Right. Now, my next question is, why now? Why, why are these documents becoming available now? And what are some of the impacts about this? Because like you say, if it's much like shipping, some of these practices are, are old. They, they hit into the 19th century. And uh, you know, looking at some of the, the, the connections here in Canada, uh, firms like uh, Applebee's and, and, and Walker's, uh, they've been around for over 100 years and they've been doing this for that time. That's exactly what their, their business has been, uh, you know, creating the laws and moving finance around. So why are these documents coming out now? And, and what should people expect from the availability of this data? Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, they, they came to us, so we decided to, <laughs> that's the short, the quick and short uh, answer. They came to us and then we, at the time we were busy with another, another investigation. So we had to really, you know, uh, get ourselves organized, make sure that everybody was available, build up the collaboration. This, this is a lot of work that happens behind the scene because it's just, you know, you have to keep everybody motivated. It's we are in the midst of a huge financial crisis in the journalism world. Some of the, you know, some of the journalists lose their jobs. They have to rebuild their their careers. So it, it's uh, and then the pandemic hit. So you know, it made it very very hard for a lot of journalists. Um, you know, not even talking about those who uh, get pressured by their governments or even inside their media are being told not to publish uh, articles. Uh, all this happens behind the scene, and it's it's um, it, it it's published now because uh, you know it's it's the the day that we decided to to publish uh, uh, you know in agreement with everybody who's on the who's on the project uh, you know with <laughs> notwithstanding there are so many elections this year as well so it's like the date is really something that is um, <laughs> that mm-hmm. has to be decided with a lot of different people. Um, it, it still matters, you know, even though Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, Offshore Leaks, China, uh, uh, yes, West Africa Leaks. We had a few um, a few projects uh, called Leaks or Files already about about offshore finance. And still, you know, when, when you look through these documents, uh, some of these stories resonate today because even though some of the companies have been closed or have been sold off to somebody else, uh, what they reveal is still of, of importance today. Um yeah about your your second point about what people should expect um 
we we don't publish the documents online except you know we we select a few specific documents that we think people should should be able to see and we uh, you know embed them in the stories but then separately um, we are going to organize a huge effort in the data team to make sure that we can make available what we call structured data so it's basically the information we were able to extract from documents, from spreadsheets, from information forms, uh, from uh, clients' registers, and we're going to structure it, fact-check it, and publish it on our Offshore Leaks database. Uh, when, uh, we don't know yet because it's, <laughs> it's going to require some work, but this will be made uh, available you know, free of cost um, on the usual website that people have found information about the Panama Papers on, Paradise Papers. So this will be this will be uh, provided at, at some point this year and, and early next year. Um, but the documents, as usual, we, we don't we don't share uh, we don't share the documents. It's uh, it's our policy. That's uh, very very interesting. All of it and in the work the, some of the data work that you've looked at so far. I mean, you've you mentioned a couple of the the, the key players, some big names that have appeared in this in this data leak. Are there other key findings that that you could highlight at this time from from this uh, data leak? Um, more stories are, are are going to get published, so it, it's uh, it's it's not done, right? I mean, it started on on Sunday, but some of our partners are still publishing this week, and we expect to to keep on reporting on this. Um, I mean, we we do have a very interesting. A glimpse into uh, the establishment in Pakistan. So some of the army generals who've been using offshore companies for years, even though the prime minister Khan uh, promised to clean up um, <laughs> to clean up the act. Uh, yeah. So you know, people in power in Pakistan, people in power in Africa. Um, we I, I worked on an investigation that I really liked about uh, a person who's dead now, but who used to be a very known art collector, a very respected art collector, but he was indicted in 2019 in the US and it was revealed that he had actually helped to sell looted antiquities around the world. Um, and he does have trusts in the data that we accessed. So we were able to reveal a few of his holdings that were, that were known uh, about. And this is something that's, you know, it's it's a it's a concrete uh, it's a concrete way the offshore industry is actually helping, you know, the art collectors, the, the antiquities um, business to function. So it's it's also it's one of those um, it's one of those revelations that is very interesting because even though we do not have that many documents about what was done with those companies, we can see we can we can use it to as as like a puzzle piece, right? To to complete some things that that others have previously reported on. So very, it's, very interesting. And I think the um the art collection, what a way to to sort of wrap up uh, this discussion because there in itself is another another world where major sums of of dollars and euros and pounds are being traded across the globe through through art. And again, how that always comes about is not the most straightforward process in that way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I fear Delphine that we could be here for quite a bit of time chatting about the, the many different findings that are going to come out of the Pandora papers. But for those who are regular GDP listeners and for those who may be tuning in for the first time, I would strongly encourage a visit to the international consortium of investigative journalists website and start doing some searches and find some names and see where these connections go. 
Uh, again, I tip my hat to how well the visualization of this data is on your website. And uh, as someone who's used it in his own research, it's uh, a very important tool for uh, researchers, journalists, and uh, graduate students as well to use in their own work. So uh, Delphine, I just want to give you a big round of applause, big thank you for, uh, for the work that you do as a data journalist and researcher for the ICIJ. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure indeed, and hopefully we will be able to talk to you again. Thank you.